the book of Hebrews. We're going to be going through different parts of the book. We're going to lift out different things in the book. But the theme of what we look, want to look at in the study tonight is going to be this. Jesus is greater than all, according to the book of Hebrews. Jesus is greater than all, according to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, as we know, is it's divided into 13 chapters. Of course, the original languages don't have the division. And there are 287 verses in the whole of the book. And notice, it's, I've been saying the book of Hebrews, I think all of us would say the book of Hebrews, but really, Hebrews isn't really classed as a book, but a letter. It's a letter. And the idea for the book of Hebrews was they were to lift it from the beginning, start to read it, and they didn't finish the letter until they were at the very end of it. And the reason that was there's a theme through it, and it was to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. It was to show those who had been converted from Judaism and come away from temple worship, who now had come under maybe persecution, and just really struggling with the faith because of what was happening, especially uh, the persecution of their fellow Jews. They're starting to turn back for an easy life, starting to turn back to what they came away from. They're starting to forget the word that they had been taught. And so the book of Hebrews has been written to them, obviously it's to us, but to them to show us that you know we can't go to dead back to dead works. Dead works of religion, uh, dead works of what happens in our nation. We cannot go back to dead works, especially since we have been enlightened by knowing Christ. Unfortunately, many are doing these things. Turning to lifeless rituals and religions, turning back to what the world demands of them fear of not having the population or the populace in their church pews with them and so they're trying to become more like them and in the book of Hebrews it was written and also let me say this prophetic ways too in the scriptures we're always hearing of a a new built temple at Jerusalem and that may well be that that's their aim to do that we read about it and hear about that but that is not where Christ is and that is not where salvation is in fact, the actual idea to rebuild Zion's temple is what I believe. And this is my personal belief. You don't need to believe this. My personal belief is this will be the trigger to culminate all that's happening together at the minute, all the nations coming around the, 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 the Holy Land, if you want, or the land of Palestine, our Canaan land. And they're coming and they're gathering. Ezekiel 38 tells us it. And we see it happening, and it may not be even for another lot of years yet. It may be tomorrow, we don't know, but the nations are gathering around. And when that's happening, I, th- I believe the actual culmination will be, or may well be, I should say, is that they will try to inaugurate temple worship. And that will cause the Dome of the Rock to be needing to be knocked down, or else built beside. And if that happens, World War Three, as we know it, will just be the blue touch paper for it. Okay, so we need to look at this, but in that, I don't support a Jewish temple being built for these reasons. To me, 
through the scriptures, Christ is more than enough. We don't need it. Christ, and that is for Jewish people too, or whoever else, whether they're Muslim or whatever they are, Christ is all and all. And so in this, reading it as a letter from chapter 1 and verse 1, right through to chapter 13, turn to verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm just going to lift a couple of verses out, and then we're going to start digging into it a little bit. Look what it says. God starts with Christ's deity. God, who at sundry times and divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. So notice what the, the writer is saying here. I, I believe possibly more that this is Paul writing this. But whoever the Hebrew writer is, we'll put it like that to save any consternation. The Hebrew writer is saying to them, listen, God here, the word is theos in the Greek. Elohim would be, or Achanai, the judge, would be in the Old Testament if he was called. God, who had sundry times in diverse manners, different times, various ways, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. He's looking and saying, look, our fathers in the Old Testament, our fathers coming through the wilderness, we think of Moses, we think of Joshua, we think of the judges, we think of the prophets, He says he spoke through them. In other words, the word and the oracle of God came through flesh, came through man, these prophets. And they didn't listen to them. And of course, Christ comes along and he gives parables of a man who let out his vineyard to these keepers of the vineyard. And of course, they slew everyone who came to gather fruit of it. And then he sends his son, speaking of the same thing here of Hebrews 1 and 1. Speaking times past unto the fathers by the prophets. Notice, half in these last days. Notice the days that he's speaking of, the last days. Now, if this was the last days, where are we today but the last of the last days? And Jesus gives us a parable of the man who was beaten on the road to Damascus. And he was beaten by robbers and he's taken by the Good Samaritan to the inn and the Good Samaritan pays two pennies. Remember, two pence. And, he, and he's, he, he gives them to the innkeeper and he says, when I return, if I owe the odd, I will repay thee. Now we're told that a, a, a penny a day was a laborer's hire. So two pence was for two days. Two prophetic days, according to Peter, a day is with the Lord is a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. So it's a penny a day, and a day is a thousand years. One penny, two pennies is for two thousand years. Now he says, if I owe the odds, so we cannot tell the day nor the hour when Christ will return. Or we can almost gather this together and say, well, he's, he's coming in this month, for this was when he had spoken this parable, or this is when he had died and ascended into heaven. So two thousand years, exactly almost to the day, we could guess the day, but we can't, no man knoweth the day or the hour. When I owe thee, or if I owe thee aught, I repay thee. And so the Lord Jesus is saying, I may, I may be 2,000 years, I may be over it. No man knoweth the day. No man knows, not even the angels of heaven, when Christ will return, save the Father only. So here we see that, uh, that in, and here he's spoken in the last days, he's spoken unto us by his Son. That's what he speaks at through the parables as well. Whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, 
upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now notice the very outset of this. God, the Son of God, Calvary, resurrection, ascension and glorification. Notice this, he says, he's spoken unto us by his sons in verse 2. The brightness of his glory and express image of his person is in verse 3. Notice then he says, upholding all things by the word of his power and when he had himself purged our sins, Calvary, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty and high. What's that? Ascension, resurrection from the grave, ascension into, into heaven, glorification in the presence of his father. So can you see that already in a nutshell? See, and this is what the gospel is. This is what counts, not what man's trying to build. And so then, if we, we'll look at verse maybe four, that's one of the points where Jesus is better, but don't want to go there just, just yet. Go to chapter 13 to the end of the book, please. Now, this same one that he speaks off the whole way through, we're going to look at some of it, and it's going to be, obviously, it's not, a, it's not a, an exhaustive one because it's only one meeting we're doing this over. It's more of a, an overview. But notice what he says, chapter 13. Let your eye run down to verse 8. Jesus Christ, the same. The same as what? He's the same God who, who upholds all things by the word of his power. He's the same God who at sundry times in divers' manners came and spoke through his son. He's the same one who healed the sick and raised the dead. So he's the same yesterday and today and forever. Let your eye run down to verse 12. says, Wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gate or outside the city walls. They put him outside again. This is Calvary, Golgotha. So at the beginning of it is Calvary, the shedding of his blood, the purging of our sins. And at the end of the chapter, he's finishing off the end of the chapter with the same theme. In other words, there's no room from the beginning to the end, from the alpha and the omega of this book or this letter. Once you start reading this letter, it's Christ the whole way through is greater. He's better. And there's nothing else can replace him. So whenever we get to this, he says, Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffering without the gate. Let us go, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. What is this? Sanctification of his spirit. We can't do this without his sanctification. For here, for here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. In other words, here's our sanctification. Here's his glorification in the saints. In other words, because he's in us sanctifying us, we are to be different. We are to go outside the gate to the cross. He was crucified outside the gate, outside the city walls. And so what he's saying here is, then let us carry our cross. Let's go to him, to Calvary all the time and stay there. Let's remember the cross and be sanctified different, not in a temple but sanctified and different according to the shedding of his blood. And then when we come on down again, let your eye run down to verse 20. Now the God of peace, this is the same God 
from chapter 1 and verse 1. God, who at sundry time and divers manners, speaking time past unto the Father by the prophets, have neither last days spoken unto us by his Son. Now he mentions him at the end. He says, now the God of peace or shalom, the God who has, it's not just, well, be having a little bit of peace, you know, of mind. This is a full embodiment. This is a full embodiment of peace. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, there he is resurrected. Brought again from the dead of the Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, notice, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Calvary again. Can you see how he's, he's really just throwing this out here? This is all to do with Christ and his death and resurrection. There's nothing else here in the writer's mind. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom he to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he goes on to salute people and remembers them at the end of this letter. So what is the Hebrew writer telling us now? He said, when we start this, we'll start with Christ. Deity becoming humanity. We'll have the shedding of blood, Calvary. Resurrection, ascension, glorification, all in the first three verses. And then at the end of it, he said, he's the same. And this same one, this is who he is. He's resurrected and he starts all over again. So he finishes with it to keep it in our minds. So turn to the book, uh, pardon me, turn to chapter 10. Chapter 10, let's read something from this and we'll, we'll hover around here for a while because this is very important. For the law having, first one, for the law having a shadow of good things to come, Notice what it was. He's now referring to what the law was. The law was a shadow of good things to come. The temple was a shadow. Jesus says this temple will be torn down. It's not right. Not one stone would not be left upon another. Yet they are wanting to, 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 to stay here in this form of worship after saying they've come to know saving grace in Christ. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. In other words, you can go to those sacrifices. You can build that temple. You can stay there and slaughter the lambs and do all of those things. He says, all of that, even when it was in its perfection before it was uh, taken and Excuse the term, but bastardized. That's the term of it. It was mongrelized with other things. I said, before it even became like this, he says, now even it's even worse. It's not the true Hebraic Israelitish worship that it was. And now what it is, there's no Ark of the Covenant here. God's glory isn't coming down to an Ark. That wasn't there at the time. It was gone. Says, so what do you, where is God's glory in this? It's all ritual. It's all ritual. And so what he's saying was this was a shadow of good things to come. What was the good things to come? Christ. He's always pointing to him. And he says the sacrifices that they offer year year by year continually, he says they can't make you perfect. So he's going to bring us in to show us the difference in this chapter in these sacrifices. Look at verse 2. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. In other words, if it was perfect. We wouldn't have needed another sacrifice. 
because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. You know, whenever we get saved, the forgiveness of sin and the knowledge of it, it, it just it releases your spirit. It sets you free. But these men were doing this ritual. Listen, and, and if you read this, you can look at the Catholic Church and see the papal mass. How they're offering an unbloody sacrifice with the mass, uh, coming and praying over this, and, uh, and as it were, in their eyes, um, transubstantiation is the, the taking of the wafer to turn it into the body, blood, sinew, and divinity of Jesus, and they eat him. It's called, they call it the real presence. There's no real presence, really, at all. And it's the same here. It was the exact same here. Same here in the Jewish temple. And notice what he says here. Verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. They keep having to do it because they're not cleansed. It's ritual. It's, it's to try and ease a burden that they can't ease. Verse 4. For it is not possible, notice it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. Yet we're even hearing it today. They're going to be doing this and taking, they're going to be offering sacrifices. And we say, but the Bible tells us, especially Christians, I don't understand. Maybe people from a Jewish faith, well, you can understand for they don't know Christ. But Christians are helping them to do this. And I say, well, why? Point them to Jesus. Point every man to Jesus, but I'm just saying that in this, in this, because of the temple here, point them all to Christ. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offerings thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. You know what he's saying now? He's saying, See all those bodies that are lying slain on altars in this temple? He says, That's not what I'll accept. But now when I look at my son and his body, broken on the cross, suffering and bleeding and dying, and hanging and, hanging and writhing in pain and in agony with the sin of the world upon him, he says, now that I'll accept. You see the difference in this? You can sense the power of it, you know. The power in the blood of Jesus. Jesus is greater in all of these things. Verse 5, he says, pardon me, verse 6, in burnt offerings and, and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. God will not take pleasure in another temple. Because you're the temple of the Holy Ghost. Verse 7, then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book that is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings, an offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst thy pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. So what is this then? What is happening? Notice this. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. We're going to do God's will and we're going to build a temple. We're going to do God's will and we're going to just... Even in Christian circles, there are religious, so-called Christian religious ceremonies. That's not the, lo- the will of God. The will of God is to, to hear his word and to do it the will of God. People say, what is the will of God? The will of God is to hear his word and to do it. Then he says here, 
He taketh first nine, he taketh away the first that he may establish the second. Now notice, he taketh away the first. We'll hopefully look at it in a minute. But the first what? The first testament, the old covenant. He takes that away because we fail at it. And it doesn't cover, it doesn't cleanse, as you say, our sin. That he may establish the second. It wasn't an afterthought. He was showing us our need of Christ. For the law is our schoolmaster that points us to Christ. In other words, the law says, Ken Davidson, you're just a sinner. But the second covenant says, but you can come to me for I've paid your debt. Does that make sense? So I notice this. Verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified. How are we sanctified? What does the word say? Through the offering of the body, not the lamb, not the bull, not the goat. Through the body of Jesus Christ. Listen, once for all. It means once and for all. So why do we need anything else? We don't. That's the point. We don't. Verse 11 says, And every priest, now he casts us from Calvary to the temple. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oft times the same sacrifices, what does it say? Which can never take away sin. It can't work. And then in verse 12 he says, but this man, isn't that lovely? In other words, he's, the Father's looking here, writing through the Spirit, and the Spirit through the pen, of whether it's Paul or another writer, but he's writing here and he's saying, look, let me show you the body of my son on the tree. Now, what else can match that? What can you do? What can you give? What can you offer me that will, excuse me, pardon the pun on the day when the Americans are voting, that can trump this? you do to trump what Christ has done you can't there's nothing and so we're going to look at Jesus is better than all of it than all of it so when we look at this also he says but this man he brings you from the temple back to his son see him oh I love him I love this one but this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Notice the temple, they're continually trying to please God, as it were. They're continually trying to appease God. And they're continually trying to, trying to get rid of their sin. And the, and the Lord's going, I'm not there. I haven't been for a long time. But if you want to see me, look at Calvary. There's a man hanging on a tree. But this man my son. You see how you know it starts to open up when you think of these things. So in, in, it's thought that this, because of verse um, verse 11, mentioning the priest, that every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oft times the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. And most people think that this is written before the destruction of the temple, obviously, which happened, in, as I've told you many times, in A.D. 70. 
when Titus came to Jerusalem. So the temple is still in operation. Christ has died. He's been resurrected. He has ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's our great high priest in the glory. And he's coming again. And here we see a difference here. Notice this. Verse 7 and 8. We see the coming of, of, of the life of Christ. Verse 7 and 8. We have. Thus, or then said I. Lo I come in the volume of the. It was written of me to do thy will. O God we see. This is him. I am come here. I am come. The wonderful thing about Jesus being greater than all as well. Well, look at he's greater than the prophets. And the wonderful thing about it is, is that the prophets say, keep more, to him give all the prophets witness. And they were pointing to him as future coming. You know, and God who at sundry time and divers manners speak in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. They're going, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. All the prophets, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And there was no sign of him, but they're going, he's coming, he's coming. And the wonderful thing, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, Christ steps forward and he says, Lo, I am come. <laughs> See the difference? He's coming. And these prophets, whoa, whoa, this is a mighty word from God, but he is the word of God. And he says, I am come. Difference. It's a big difference. So in verse 8 he says, Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by law. So here is the coming on the life of Christ before his Father. So then verses, that's 7 and 8, verses 9 and 10. Notice this, we have the death of a son. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then 12 and 13, verses 12 and 13 of chapter 10, we have the ascension and the glorification again of Christ. Notice verse 12. But this man, after he had offered up one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Notice here is his, uh, his uh, resurrection and his ascension. Now his glorification in verse 13. Look, from henceforth expecting Till his enemies be made his footstool. Can you think about this? Henceforth expecting Christ, this great King of Kings, sitting at the right hand means the place of power and authority and glory. And he's sitting, waiting, expecting to reap a harvest and then he's coming. <laughs> so it's all about Christ, it's all about glorification of Christ. So in him we have full and complete salvation. Verse 14, For by one, by one offering he hath perfected forever. Ah, now remember we read earlier, those cannot be perfected through the sacrifice of animals. Now we're saying because of him, we're perfected forever. This is the power of the cross. This is the power of what Jesus has done at Calvary. Notice this, he says, and verse 14, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Wherefore the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that 
he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. So we're perfected forever. Everything of my past, even your nature, whether you'd, you'd grown up under the, the gospel or whether you grew up under the devil, and when you're in Christ, it's all gone. And you're perfected in Christ. So then we have here, the writer states in verse 11, a contrast. Notice verse 11, you have 10, 11, 12. In verse 11, you have, pardon me, in verse 10, we have the body of Christ, the offering of the body of Christ once for all. In verse 12, we're told it was offered one sacrifice for sins forever. But in verse 11, we have man's dead religion. Christ, now look at you. Here's Christ. The wonderful thing, he offers us, he offers men and women Christ. He offers them Christ. He offers them his son. Here he is. And then he says, now there you are in the temple. There you are. You're offering dead works to me. He says, now here he is again. Do you want him? It's fantastic. And it's a wonderful way the spirit of God just, he can lift you from Calvary. And in an instant in the next verse, you're standing in the temple. And then he goes, boom, in your way again. You're like caught by the lock of your hair and you're dropped back out of Golgotha again. I see him. We couldn't really write like that. You know, all the poets that we have, Robbie Burns couldn't have written like that. William Shakespeare couldn't have written like that. That's the only two I know. <laughs> I would mention other names. <laughs> Palmer. <laughs> you know, but, you know, they, that's what the Spirit does. He takes you and he drops you in somewhere. For one minute you're dropped at Calvary. Then he takes you and he just drops you in an instant within a verse. Boom, you're in the middle of a temple and there's a priest offering dead sacrifices. And he takes you again and he drops you back at the cross. He says, this is where life is. Even though there's death here, it's because he died you'll live. It's wonderful. In verse 11, when we are taken into the temple, we have a standing priest. I notice the difference here. We have a standing priest priest and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oft times the sacrifice which can never take away sin and we see that in different forms in Christianity and other religions we see it in the Catholic Church the form we see it even in Islam counting beads or rosary beads as it were in the Catholic Church and the Islam have beads too to count by the way and we see this in Judaism we see their ritual we see they're cleansing out of their house when they're sweeping out of their house uh, uh, trying to clean it all out and purge it out. And they say, it's not in there. The purging must be in the heart. It's the purging of the soul. And it's not in your rituals. It's in Jesus. So we see standing priests. Many denominations we see standing priests. And so there's no anointing. It's all work. It's ritual. Religion. It's all work. But in verse 12, we see a seated Savior. A seated Savior. Verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Now notice, he sat down. Why did he sit down? 
because he cried, it is finished. You don't sit down to your work's finished. It's all done. It's over. He's paid it. So we have a seated Savior. Notice, standing priests with dead works on earth, we have a seated Savior with living life in heaven. I know it's one I trust. And I know it's one I believe in. And I know it's one I love. And it's the seated Savior who's paid it all. So, this letter that says written between obviously AD 33, roughly when Jesus was crucified after, just it's been after that, but it's before AD 70 because the temple seems to be um, the thing that's drawn the people away here. So when it says it's finished, Jesus has completed and finished his work. Let me give you some to strengthen just this little this term. Go to Genesis chapter two. This is how finished. Okay, this is how finished the work of Calvary or the work of Jesus on the cross was for your redemption, for your perfection, for your salvation, and the completion of all that we need for heaven. Notice this, Genesis two. Let's read first from verse one. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended His work which He had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Now you notice, finished. First one, he finished. Verse two, he ended his work. He rested on the seventh day. And in verse 3, he sanctified it. In other words, he set this rest apart. This is a special rest. In other words, this rest means there's nothing to be added to the creation. Are we getting to grips with this at the minute? And he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now, you see, whenever we say the work of Calvary, when Christ died on the cross, and when I rise from this finished, it's the same. He said, it's done. And when I rise from the dead, I'll be seated. Why? I'm going to rest in it. It's sanctified. The cross is sanctified by the Father. And it's the only way man can be saved, forgiven, cleansed. The only way. I know there's teaching today, it's called dual covenant theology, and it's very rife. And it's coming more and more into a Christian church. And sadly, especially by Pentecostals or Charismatics. And there's going to be salvation through another temple again. And these are by men who preach the gospel on television alone. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says it's obsolete and it's done. It's in Christ and Christ alone. Christ and Christ alone. So... Go back with me. Let's go back to the, the book of Hebrews again. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. So we have a completed finished work. Let's try run down again to verse 16. This is the covenant 
that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds while I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Now, hold on a wee minute. But we're told by dual covenant theology preachers, yes, there will be. The temple will be built. There will be more offerings. The Bible teaches the opposite. Now, these are Christian men preaching this. Teaching the opposite here. There is no more, he says. Verse 19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now I notice the difference here. You know where God's bringing us here? He's saying, see in the tabernacle in the wilderness and then in the temple in Jerusalem later. The format was you were able to go to the outer courts and into the first area of the temple, the holy place, where the priests would slay the animals. And as they made their way closer, they get to God, in other words. They went by the first veil and then by the second veil or curtain. And when they went in there, that was the holiest, the holy of holies. And when they went in there, that's where the ark was. They sprinkled the blood and that was shed on the, on the furniture. And when they did that, the glory came down. There was the sinner there was the the ark there was God's glory but all but by the blood that he seen when he came down in glory the sinner would die so it was the blood that saved it was a foreshadowing it was a type but when Jesus died and the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom he cried it is finished the Hebrew writer is bringing this to them and saying it doesn't matter if you sew up a big curtain in that temple again some say it was up to 60 feet tall it was like a thick carpet, you know. It wasn't just like a, it wasn't like your net curtains you hang up over your window. This was a, this was a big, big, sixty foot tall carpet, nearly. Some say it was inches thick. It was rent from the top to the bottom, not from the bottom to the top. In case anyone could say his disciples got it, tore it a bit. One took one side, one took the other, and rent it the whole way up or whatever, cut it up. God came as though he had taken a bill with a piece of paper on it. And took it from the top and ripped it to the bottom, so to say, the debt has been paid. And he ripped that. And we have access into the holiest. And so what he's saying is, that's obsolete. It's temples being rent. The feel of the temples being rent. And we are now able to go directly into God's presence. Because Christ has done this. But look what it says here. Verse 19. Having therefore, having therefore brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Boldness is not a reverence. And the boldness isn't either. It isn't um, arrogance. Boldness means assurance. Like my children can come to me and talk to me about anything. Well, they're getting older now and girls don't like to talk to their daddies about certain things. And I find out later on, especially there's boys involved somewhere, the older one, I'm not told anything. But they know they can come to me and they can talk to me. By the way, if you only see them with boys, let me know, won't you? I'll soon fix them. And they can come and talk to me. I'm their father. They, have, they know I love them, so they can come anytime. 
It's the same idea where they were separated by the curtain. It represented the separation between Israel and their God. It's the same with you and I still. If we're not in Christ, it separates us. Our sins have separated between you and your God. And this was the veil that kept them separate. But now Jesus has rent this, as it were. God rented at the death of his sons. This is paid for. Now you can enter in if you come by him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You see, all these things that Jesus mentions, he's referring to Israelite identity and history. I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. The vine was a symbol of Israel. And he's saying, I am the true Israelite. You have failed in many ways. He says, my father is the gardener. And my father is the one who prunes and does all these things. But if you're in me, then you'll have that identity back again. It's, it's so simple when we read it. But here he says, look, you can come into my presence, into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. It doesn't say you can come in by the blood of bulls and goats or turtle doves or pigeons they used to do that they used to cut wee pigeons in half they couldn't afford it and they cut it in half and shed their blood says, you can't do this but you can come and you can come expecting expecting to talk to me and to meet with me to have fellowship with me but you must come by the blood of Jesus it's the only way now Notice what he says in verse 20. By a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. We can come right through that veil. What is the veil? That is to say, his flesh. <laughs> because they put a spear in his flesh and rent him and the blood and water came out. That was our sacrifice, the body, but this man once offered, once for all, never to be repeated again. He says, you come this way through the blood of Jesus, the veil is rent, and the veil is his flesh. His flesh was torn that you and I could enter in. Isn't that tremendous? It's tremendous. So whenever we look at this, notice what it says in verse 21, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. Notice, in full assurance. Don't doubt the blood of Jesus. Don't doubt the cross work of Christ. Don't doubt that you need anything else. You need none other, no one else. There is no other way. Just don't doubt it and come. Just come. I just think this is... This just thrills my soul. I think it's tremendous. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. There's many Christians today and they, and they love the Lord but they start to waver in things. Even wavering is, is God still love me? Is God's grace still abound over my sin? Will God forgive my failures? I've been weak, I've been wavered. Will God forgive me? He says, look, don't you waver because I'll tell you, you can come to me at any time because it's the blood I see and not of animals that you keep having to go over and over and over again. Once you're his, he says, when you're mine, you're mine. 
He says, and I come in full assurance. Tremendous, isn't it? Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Now, you notice this. He takes all of a sudden the emphasis, the burden, the stress of it. Let me say it again. He takes the, he takes the burden of it. He takes the stress of it. takes the weight of it off your soul. Takes it away from your spirit. The heavy burden of, uh, is this true? Can I really come into the presence of the Holy One of Israel? He says, come, he says. And when you come, come in full assurance. Hold fast the profession of your faith without wavering. Why? Because you're so wonderful? Because I'm so wonderful and great? He says, no. Because he is faithful. That's the difference. Because he is faithful that promised. Bear with me a few minutes. I'm going to show you something else and then we'll wrap tonight's study up. That's what he says here. In verse, <clears throat> let me just find it. Verse 20, we have a new and a living way. Go to verse 16. This is the covenant I will make with them. We have a new covenant. A new covenant brings us into a new way. Let me say it again. The new covenant brings us into a new way, a living way. The idea here for a new living way, it gives the idea of, let me put it like this. Turn with me to the book of Leviticus 16. Just going to lift one verse. And this is where this will be referring to really. So Leviticus 16. And one verse would be verse 14, if I'm correct. Yes, just for time's sake. Let's read verse 14. Leviticus 16, verse 14. And he shall take, this is the priest, the high priest in Israel, going behind the veil into the holy place. As he comes towards it, notice, he shall take the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times. Now, the high priest would come and he'd have the blood in a basin. He enters into the holy place. He takes the blood on his finger. And he goes to where the mercy seat is. You know what the mercy seat is? It was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And that's called the mercy, the lid that covered it with the angels uh, touched wing with wing. And that lid was called the mercy seat. Now John writes and tells us that Christ is the propitiation of our sin. And the mercy seat is what's known as the propitiation. What does it mean? God's wrath was averted, means propitiation in a nutshell. Let me give you an idea. Whenever they went in and they sprinkled the blood, I told you earlier there was a mercy seat. They sprinkled it on the mercy seat seven times. Seven droplets of blood or seven sprinklings of blood. And so when God's glory comes down, he sees mercy on the mercy seat. But there's no blood. They still die. God could show you mercy. God can show the word mercy. God could show your, uh, the, your work colleagues and the ones around us who are unsaved can show the mercy. But if they don't have the blood applied, 
still lost. God is merciful, but he's still lost. So when he sees the mercy seat, he looks for the blood. And when he's seen the blood, the wrath that was coming out, or the glory that would consume, pardon me, the glory that would consume the, the high priest, that wrath or that glory that would consume him was um, swallowed up, as it were, by mercy, because the blood was on it. See? So, what they're saying here is uh, that there's a mercy seat, but it's not in a temple. John says Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He is our mercy seat. So when God's wrath should have been poured out on you and on me, it wasn't, but in Calvary, the wrath was poured out on Jesus. And when he's seen the blood, the blood was shed for you and the blood was shed for me. So when he sees the blood, wrath of God, the anger of God against a sinner, a depraved wretch like me, was swallowed up by that man he took the full wrath of God on the cross and the blood was applied to you and me and we went free propitiation is this I give this illustration over at the Methodist when I was speaking there um, earlier in the year if you ever go to that's spelled with um, Silent Valley. Now, if you go in the car part of Silent Valley and you will go across, every now and again, well, when we can, Alison and I would go, and it's nice and quiet, and you go for a walk, and you walk, there's like a duck pond, and there's a big, you just go on, you look ahead of you, and there's a big green hill right at the top of you. I don't know, I'll just explain in case you haven't been there. A big, steep green hill, and at the top, there's a wall runs along it. And when you get up the top of that hill, there's a path at the wall and you look over the mountains are chiseled out by man it's a man made uh, uh, dam and the water's filled up right behind that so when you think about this I, I don't know if your mind thinks like this but I look down and I see all this water away in this valley between these mountains millions or whatever it is of gallons and I look where I'm standing at the top of this hill and I realize way down at the bottom of that hill where I was on the other side I'm away below the water level and you would you would just be consumed by it. So can you imagine if you're walking up there to one of these, it's vastly greater than that, and you're walking it near at the bottom of this, and there's this big hill, and behind it's all these millions or billions of gallons of water, and suddenly there becomes a crack in the middle of it. Can you imagine then if that crack starts to dribble water, and suddenly you realize, I'm in trouble here? And imagine if it was that big. I know we're going way out of it, but it's just to give you an idea. Imagine if it was that big. You could run uh, to the left or to the right, but if you went left, there's a thousand mile run. And if you went to the right, there's a thousand mile run. And you know it's breaking now. And if you go to run back again, it's going to take you out anyhow. You can't get away. You can't outrun it. You can't escape it. And suddenly you decide, I can only stand here and take it. And the dam breaks. And these billions of gallons of water and even the rubble of it comes down to just wash you away and consume you up. And as it's just flowing down and it's about to land on you and you think it's all gone, all over for you, suddenly the ground opens up. There's a big chasm opens up in the ground. And every droplet of water goes down into this big chasm in the ground. Can you imagine that? Like a big earthquake comes. 
and you're standing right at the edge of this and all this billions of gallons of water, you're watching it and what a fearful sight and you realize not one, not one single droplet lands in your shoe. And you realize you've been saved. That's propitiation. You see, God's wrath was like that dam, only greater and bigger and eternal. And we could run one million miles to the left or the right or a billion miles. We could not outrun it. We were stand to face it, ready for it to consume us, to be poured out upon us. But this chasm opens up in front of us. It's called the cross. It's called the death of his son. It's called the blood of Jesus. And all that wrath, like that water, starts to be poured out. And where I'm standing at the cross, not one droplet of wrath hits me. Not one droplet of water of his wrath touches my shoe. You know why? Because Jesus took it all. That's propitiation. That's wrath of God being averted. That's what it means. And when the priest went in, wasn't the mercy. God was merciful. He wanted to see blood. And it was the blood the priest went sprinkling. And he wanted to see blood. And when he saw the blood, the high priest lived. But they had to keep continually doing it because the two couldn't take away sin. It couldn't make them perfect. When Jesus died, when Christ died, he is our mercy seat, our propitiation. The wrath of God is averted in him. And when he sees us, instead of the wrath being poured out, we receive mercy because the blood was shed. Does that make more sense now? This is what they're trying to tell us here in the book of Hebrews. And for some reason, which it goes way beyond me, I don't understand it. There are so many Christians who are trying to help build another temple. How could you ever match this? I haven't even got started yet on Jesus is greater than. I'm going to take you through it, God willing, next week. So we'll, we'll stop here and send this. Stop here and send this. The idea of the new and living way has to come not with a priest. It's not, it gives the idea, it's not the priest sprinkling behind at the mercy seat, behind the veil of the temple. But the new and living way gives the idea where blood is shed. It's a road paved with blood. Jesus' blood still avails today it means it's new it's like as though it's been shed just this moment yet it'll never be shed again because the power of the blood still stands the power of blood look I don't mean to be I don't mean to be descriptive but when we were in the states you know roadkill out there is a bit different than the roadkill here you know you see the odd rabbit or a rat or a mouse or whatever you know the odd badger even here out there we stopped and there was armadillos everywhere you know there were there were possums and there were skunks and, and one day we were driving along this highway and there was a full sized deer there's deers all over the place and they're hit knocked down the lorries these big highways going through Tennessee 
and there was a full-sized, big, massive deer laying at the side of the road. And when we drive on up, there was another one that had been mangled by other lorries. And I don't mean to be descriptive, but to give you an idea, the size of these animals and the blood that they contain, the full road was red. You're driving through it in the car, like, just red blood. Food just covered in red blood. David done that when he's bringing the ark back into Jerusalem. He slayed six paces that were, about six paces roughly. He slayed an animal and the blood would have went everywhere. They're walking through the blood and another one, another six paces and another animal. And I was sort of thinking, when I seen that, I said to Alison, it makes me think of what must have been like the road into Jerusalem when David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back in after the Philistines had it. What must the road have been like? It was just pure red with blood everywhere. Paved with blood. That had been covered in blood. The priest in the temple with all the animals being covered in it. It's, it's, it sounds horrific and it is, but it's, it gives us the idea of the, the horrific nature of our sin. And the idea here is that in a new and living way, this is a road that's been paved with blood. And as we walk it, we're covered in it. But it's not dead. It's living. It's still alive. It still speaks to God. And it's for you and I tonight. Come. So you can see why Jesus is better. He's greater, superior to all others. Listen, bless his word to us tonight. God bless you. And